He grew up in Harare in Zimbabwe, and with grit and determination and a little bit of luck, he managed to get himself a scholarship to Yale in the US. And today, he's helping manage one of Australia's leading impact investment advisory firms. His name is Simba Marakera, and he's my guest today on the Good Future podcast. I'm John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about finance, the new economy, and how your investment decisions, no matter how big or small, can have an impact. Simba opened up about his upbringing and how he found his way to Sydney. And while his family didn't have a lot of money, he explained that as a child, he didn't see it that way. He dealt with his fair share of tragedy, but what stayed with him was his parents' example in building a business and in pushing their kids to get the education that they themselves missed out on. Today, Simba is Chief Research Officer at Bright Light Impact Advisors, the firms at the vanguard of helping investors of all shapes and sizes to understand how they can invest funds to earn risk-adjusted returns, while also having a positive social and environmental impact. His background of seeing his father build a business against the odds of helping those in need in an economy where there's no social safety net. It all helps shape him into the leading investment advisor that he is today. It was first-hand experience of social enterprise and of microfinance, just without the modern terminology. In past years, Simba's been a huge help to me as I was first learning about impact investing. And in this discussion, I'm again really grateful for the stories and insights that he shared. Now I'm keen to dive in, but as is usually the case, some of the most interesting content came in a later phone call. So stay tuned until after the credits when Simba gives us a rundown of the current political situation in Zimbabwe and how socially minded investors are helping to turn things around. All right, let's dive in. You can always jump onto my website at johntreadgold.com for all the show notes and book recommendations. But for now, here's Simba Marakera. start off, I'd love to get a feel for your background, Simba, growing up in Zimbabwe. What was life like as a child? Life was pretty good, as, as, almost as far as I was concerned. And I think looking back into the sort of life I grew up with and where I'm now, it was pretty bad. We had to do with a very little, but growing up, I didn't get that sense at all. You know, we, <laughs> I grew up in a low-income neighborhood in the outskirts of Harare, the capital of Zimbabwe. I don't remember sort of not having enough to eat, so to speak. So we had enough to eat. We didn't have a lot of playgrounds, so we played in the streets, you know. We didn't have enough money to buy toys, but we made our own. You would use waste plastics, wires and clothes to make balls and toys and and those kind of things. So of, um, growing up, it was normal, I guess, that kind of living. And for all intents and purposes, I had a pretty good childhood. My parents were very low income in that sense because my dad didn't finish high school and my mom didn't finish primary school. And they were fighting for us to go to school and make sure that we make a future for ourselves. So that was sort of this, the childhood that I grew up with. But I think just like any other, most of the sort of frontier markets or emerging markets, the key issue there is that there's no social safety net, right? So you can have a, a life like that where you've got enough to eat, but if, if something adverse happens to the family, 
whether it's a death in the family or an illness in the family, there's nothing that can stops you from slipping into poverty, so to speak, where you actually struggling to earn a living. That's really is what happened with me, with my mom passing away when I was a teenager. She was diagnosed, there was a late diagnosis of breast cancer. My dad spent basically all he had to try and get it to be better. She didn't and she, she passed away, which meant that he then was left with four kids to take care of while also trying to earn a living and those kind of things. And so there was no, so that sort of defined, in a sense, my teenage years as I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. In a sense, you know, as, as you probably will speak later about how that kind of experience drove me into the kind of work I do today, because I think there's some lines to be drawn between those two experiences. And your parents were entrepreneurs. Was there still a focus on education in the household? Absolutely. I mean, as I said, my parents, because of their family circumstances, didn't get a chance to get a lot of education, so to speak, besides sort of basic education. I always tell this to my friends that I don't remember missing a day of school in primary school, right? Uh, I think maybe there might have been one or two days when I was like sick enough to not go to school, but there was that kind of strong focus on education is the way you would make a living out of your future. Uh, and so make sure that you work hard and there was emphasis on ensuring that, you know, there's close monitoring on how well I was doing. And I could see as well in terms of how hard my parents were working to send out to school. So that was an extra motivator, even with that sort of the strict regime that my parents had in ensure that we do education. I think there was sort of an intrinsic motivation that if my parents are doing this for me to go to school, I should be working hard to do that. And I mean, I was fortunate enough that I was actually doing well in school and I enjoyed it. So it wasn't that I was being forced to go to school in any way. I actually enjoyed going to school. So so that was a good combination that my parents were pretty vigilant about my education, but also I was enjoying it. And eventually you made it to Yale University all the way in the United States. Mm-hmm. What was that journey from Harare to Yale? It was an interesting one, a combination of a payoff for the hard work I did in primary and high school. But I think a part of it was just luck, to be honest with you. I think when I was in, in high school, my parents were even struggling to send me to high school. And uh, I got a scholarship to finish my high school and thinking about what to do for tertiary education. The U.S. Embassy around that time in, in Zimbabwe was running this program where they were identify high-performing students from low-income schools and help them through the process of applying for scholarships in U.S. colleges. So I was fortunate enough to be one of those students that they identified. And so they started to help us think through the process of applying to the U.S. So you have to write all these tests, you have to write essays and kind of things. And my counselor at that time determined that Yale was a potential fit for me, and I had no idea what Yale was, whether it was a good school or not. And that was actually a good thing because there was a little bit of naivety and ignorance about the caliber of a university that I was applying to. I think if I had sort of known the caliber of the university I was applying to, the way I do now, I probably wouldn't have applied because I didn't think I would have gotten in, right? So we went through that process of applying to Yale. I ended up getting a full scholarship. As they say, the rest is history. Quite an amazing story. I'm really keen to get to your current work in impact investing. But that moment when you stepped off the plane and you first got to Yale, your first trip to the US, what was that like? 
overwhelmed, to be honest. So when I was sitting on the plane for this time, sort of kind of going into the U.S., one of the things that I sort of kind of promised myself was I really need to, like, figure out what makes the U.S. tick, in a sense. Why are they so successful more than other countries? What can we learn as people from emerging markets around the way they do business? So when I stepped onto sort of JFK for the first time, I was kind of hit by the grandeur of the whole thing. I came from a very small country. My first time coming to the Harare International Airport was when I was going to the U.S. And I was amazed by the Harare International Airport, which was, <laughs> looking back, is really just one wing, <laughs> a very small airport. And then stepping into JFK, which is a, a city by itself, basically, was quite amazing. But I think, to me, the thing that struck me the most was how big JFK was. And it was so, I was sort of reminded by sort of that thinking that I really need to figure out how they make things work and how we can apply them to the magic markets. And then I wonder that background, uh, that really raw experience of running a business and the importance of it, how has that sort of informed the way you make investments today and in your approach to social enterprises and growing businesses? From my perspective, you know, growing up, as I said, you know, my, my parents were not very educated, but they were quite entrepreneurial. And I grew up kind of working in the family business, so to speak, which was kind of a small grocery shop, right? But there's still three things to me that has informed the way we think about social enterprises, especially around emerging markets, because that's kind of where we do a lot of the impact investing, uh, largely because, you know, we get a bigger bang for our buck from an impact perspective. But the first thing is that investing in social enterprise is really about empowering people to solve their own problems. We're going into communities, whether it's here in Australia or elsewhere, identifying entrepreneurial people and basically interrogating exactly how they want to work with the community to solve its problems. We rarely sort of support businesses where people are kind of taking a, a helicopter view of the opportunity or the problems they're trying to solve and they're not necessarily embedded in there and that the community and the people involved are an afterthought. So we want sort of things that are empowering the people to solve their own problems through entrepreneurial means, right? So that's that's our general approach. And that was really, I uh, was informed by the way I, I saw my dad engaging with the community, trying to identify how they can he can bring products to the community that makes sense for them. And I think the second thing that sort of is linked to that is that social and relational capital is as important, if not more important, than the financial capital that we bring in as investors. So if you don't have the relationships that are required to make the business work, to get the social license to operate, your financial capital will become exposed to all these other risks that you can't really hedge out. So when we are looking at opportunities to invest in, we're thinking about what is that sort of kind of social capital that has been created? What is the buy-in that we get from political leaders or community leaders or individuals in the community and to what extent the business is aligning to their aspirations and what they want to see in the community, right? And I think those things make a lot of sense in terms of making the business successful. And as I said, you know, growing up, my dad, his customers were low-income farmers or micro-business operators who didn't have 
very regular income and he was providing credit sometimes to those people because they needed some food but you know they haven't been paid yet and so he provide credit to those people and the thing that made that credit work was the relationship more than sort of credit underwriting and collateral or whatever right so i think that's the thing that we think about quite often when we're doing investment and the last thing is you know impact investing is really about solving problems that the normal so to speak market hasn't been able to solve and more often than not the problem is coming up with an effective way to affordably reach people who were previously excluded so in some ways it's is the last mile problem right how do you get essential goods and services in the hands of people who are hard to reach excluded have got difficulties accessing those things and so the most successful social enterprise that we've seen are the ones we've figured out that last mile problem right is like how do you provide financial services to somebody who is in rural india who doesn't have a bank account and those kind of things and we've seen people come up with interesting ideas there same thing here even here in australia how do you engage with remote indigenous communities in order to make them economically active contribute to the development of their communities and the sort of things right and because those are areas that are really hard to reach communities that have been excluded and that's the kind of stuff that we think about oh look that's great my next question was yeah. to sort of get your definition of impact investing but i think that's a really good summary of it there yeah. and really broad based and it seems like your father's business was a clear kind of model of that with you know lots yeah. of different layers of the basic supply and demand and product support but then that social support with a form of microfinance that kind of wasn't mm-hmm. certainly wasn't called it at that yeah. stage and then just catching people up on where you are at the moment, your chief research officer at Brightlight Impact Advisors, and maybe you could fill us in on your role there. And you know, you should have talked about that social license to operate, and that being a risk factor. I imagine that that is sort of a key role that you do for your clients. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So Brightlight, as a company, was spun out of Christian Super in, in 2016, so about two years ago. But really, the story of Bradlight goes back to 2006. At that time, the founding team of Bradlight was part of the Christian Super investment team. So Christian Super at that time decided to be a 100% ethical investor, which meant that everything that they invested in had to be filtered through a social environmental and governance lens. And at that time, which are, you know, Globally, it was a market leader in that sense in terms of responsible investment. In addition to that, Christian Superman made the decision that in addition to just excluding investments in our portfolio that are unethical, so to speak, that either have low labor standards or they are damaging the environment, they wanted to actively look for opportunities that are contributing to solutions to social and environmental problems. It wasn't even called impact investing at that time, but that's what it was. And so we actively looked globally for opportunities where financial capital is being used to effectively solve social and environmental problems. So, you know, some of our early investments were in sort of microfinance in in India and South America and Africa and, you know, we did 
clean energy and clean technology in developed markets and some developing markets. We started investing in sort of social infrastructure, investing in education, healthcare, housing, those kind of things since then. So from our perspective then, you sort of fast forward to 2016, the market was starting to understand the concept of impact investing. It was now broadly being understood, but there was a missing piece in the Australian market, which was who is sort of that intermediary that can understand the needs of investors, but also understand the needs of the social enterprises and the people who are looking for capital and be able to connect those two in a way that makes sense for both. And we understood that problem quite well because we faced that problem as part of Christian Super. And therefore, Bright Light was meant to be that bridge where we are sitting in between the providers of capital and the seekers of capital and really do the work to reduce barriers between the two. Some of the barriers could be they just don't have access to the pipeline of opportunities, so we can provide that. could be that the providers of capital are looking for for advice around how they allocate capital, how they assess opportunities. So we do the research to provide them with that. On the other side, the seekers of capital may need advice around how do you prepare yourself to be attractive to an institutional investor. Again, we can help them with that. How do you structure the investment so that it makes sense for investors? We do that as well. So in a sense, Bright Light aims to ensure that there's less friction in terms of the flow of capital between the two sides. So when you're working with these big uh, institutional funds, they come to you for advice. What would be one key element of impact investing that you find is most often understood by the people coming to you guys? Their underlying member base. So if it's a super fund, right, their members are looking for ways in which they can make a difference with their investments. In the world we're living in where people are more informed, People are aware of what's happening in the world and are aware that people who've got the money caught the shorts, so to speak. Their members are asking more and more, what are you doing with my super? So that's driving the different board members and investment committees in those super funds to say, okay, what can we do to invest in things that our members care about? Uh, and so they come to us and basically say, we've done the work. We know our members care about these things then how do we come up with investment opportunities that align with the things that our members care about? And therefore, the work we do then is to think about translating the aspirations of the members into investable opportunities and portfolios. Where should you allocate? How much? What should you think about when you're allocating those areas? Are there some areas where they're not investable? So therefore, you can't really invest in some areas where they're investable, but they are not directly linked to what you're looking for, but it's close. So this is the kind of work that we're doing. I'm glad to hear that there is that enthusiasm and, and drive and that the super funds are being you know, led by their members and they're responding to it. It's great to hear. While many big funds are bringing their investment managed in-house, you're you know, offering a service going the other way, outsourcing it. Does this highlight the, the specialised nature of impact investing? Yes, absolutely. What we're offering caters for people who are both comfortable with outsourcing, but also people who are insourcing. Right. I think the key thing of what we're providing is solutions. So if you're an investor, you've got an internal team, you know, so you're internalizing a lot of your investment operations 
and you need support to be able to identify the right opportunities that are required, having a, a more customized solution. Because as I said, investing in impact investing is it's as much about what are the returns, what are the return characteristics, as well as what are the things that I care about? What are the things that our members care about? And so what that means is that from investor to investor, how that looks is very different. And so what we do then, regardless of whether you are insourcing your opportunities or outsourcing your opportunities, we are providing ways in which you can create customized solutions that fits both your financial objective as well as your impact objective. And yeah, and in our experience, we've worked with both internal teams that are built to insource some of those investment operations, as well as smaller investors that are almost outsource everything out to, to external providers. You know, the solutions we provide work for both. I guess the investable universe for impact investors seems to be growing all the time. And there's a couple of asset classes I'd love to hear your view on because they're, you know, they're quite sort of topical. Uh, that would be listed equities and, and whether you can have listed equities as, as a pure impact investment and also investments into developing markets, which you don't yeah. see uh, as many Australian investors going for. Yeah, that's right. So with public equities to start with, it was one of the key elements around impact investing if you sort of take a pure approach to this. It's a spectrum, I guess, from an impact investing perspective. On one end, you are doing investments that are avoiding harm, right? So in a sense, this is sort of the traditional exclusion approach where you just don't want to do anything bad. So you, you exclude anything that can potentially do bad. And then on the other extreme, you are actively contributing to solutions. So you are finding interesting ways to reach the unreached, as I said before, or to provide access to basic goods and services to people who didn't have them before. And so in public equities, what we tend to see is that as an investor, you can really just find businesses that are not doing bad and invest in those. And there are some investments that are actively and intentionally look, looking to provide solutions to social and environmental problems, but you tend to find a lot of those in the private market more than in the public market, but not to say that they don't exist, they're there. So if you want to build a portfolio of public equities, you're going to have a combination of positively included companies that are not doing anything bad, but they're not necessarily looking for active solutions to problems. And some, their mission is to solve those problems, right? So I think as an investor, you just need to know that public equity is most likely it's going to be a light impact type of investment. And that's okay, right? You just need to be aware of that, that it's not deep impact. It's, most of the time, it's, it's going to be that kind of investment. But I think it's needed and it's required. And I think people doing public equity should ensure that they are staying within that responsible investment spectrum and ensuring that as many of as possible of the companies are moving towards avoiding harm to contributing to solutions because that's where we want them to be. That's the public equities kind of thinking around that. On the emerging market piece, as I said earlier, our approach over the past sort of decade or so in impact has been if we really want to be contributing to the solution, we're on that sort of other extreme end of impact investing where you're intentionally and measurably 
contributing solutions, a lot of good opportunities are in emerging markets for a number of reasons. One, those are growth markets anyway, so you want to be there. India, China, the bulk of, sort of Latin America, and even parts of Africa, those are growing economies with young workforce, and therefore you want to be there uh, as an investor. And the second thing is that the biggest bang for your buck is in those markets as well. So for every dollar that you invest, it goes longer in terms of giving somebody a livelihood, sending kids to school, building infrastructure, and those kind of things. And the economics work without even public subsidy and, and the like. You know, one good example of that is that if you think about renewable energy, right, in emerging markets, for a long time in developed markets, you needed government subsidy to make renewable, like rooftop solar work for people in Australia, right? For a long time, you needed that to, to work. In emerging markets, you're substituting kerosene and diesel with solar energy, and those other sources of energy were actually much more expensive, less environmentally friendly, such that like the economics of going from kerosene to solar makes sense for the target market. All you have to do is find a way of getting it in front of them, making it affordable for them to put it on their rooftop, but you don't need sort of government subsidy to do that, so that makes sense. So anyway, so I think from our perspective, we tended to go into those markets, and what we are seeing for Australian investors is that they are starting to get their feet wet and trying to identify where they want to have their impact. It makes sense to start from home, and a lot of them are, and I think as their impact investment portfolio starts to mature, we're starting to see them going into sort of Asia Pacific, for example, and starting to expand. So we think our, our prediction at least is that more and more institutional investors would start to, I guess, allocate capital to impact investing in emerging markets. And then moving from developing markets to Victoria, I know a good example that I came across was the Nightingale project, really good example of you know innovative financing, shifting the focus to design and functionality rather than just profit and, and getting yep. the, the building up as fast as possible. Do you have some other examples of those kinds of projects? You know, that's an example of affordable housing, which is a kind of a head to hot topic here in, in Australia. The good thing about Nightingale, which is an example that you've provided there, is a focus on affordable living rather than affordable housing. Affordable living probably means from a design perspective that the housing that you're building is just more affordable to operate in the long term, whether it's natural lighting, so you don't use as much energy, whether it's renewable energy, you know, those kind of things. In the affordable housing front, we're seeing quite a bit of opportunities there. We've done a, an investment in in Western Australia, for example, it's a path to ownership strategy where we've funded the building of apartment buildings, again, that are designed to make them affordable with elements around community, renewable energy and affordable energy and affordable utilities. And as a result of that, you also come up with a program to help the tenants save for a deposit for them to buy the apartment in the future. So the way we've designed that, for example, is that a portion of their rent that they pay 
goes towards a discount on that apartment in the future if they want to pay. So in this case, it was 20%. So what that means is that 20% of the rent you pay every month goes towards you're building up a discount on the market price of, of your apartment as and when you want to buy it. We've done sort of a kind of a five-year approach where in, at the end of the five years, about 12 to 15% of the market price is taken off because you've been building up that discount. And then if you add that to your own savings, you're actually in a better position to buy the apartment if you, if you need to. So that's a sort of a more sustainable, a better path to ownership as well. So that, that's a good complement to Nightingale, for example, where Nightingale people are affordably buying off the bat and they can afford them right away. And this other approach is that we understand some people might need time and they need help to be able to afford the housing. And that's what we do in Australia in general around housing. You know, we have invested in a bunch of social impact bonds that are providing housing in particular to at-risk youth in partnership with the Queensland government or the Victorian government. So, yeah, so our approach, again, is identifying key issues within those communities and, and see how we can participate in that. And I mean, with that Nightingale project, the yeah. social impact is really clear, but there would obviously be costs to, you know, those elements. Were, were the returns still strong for, you know, the developers? Is it scalable in that way? Yeah, yeah. The key thing for that is that, you know, the affordability comes from the design, so to speak. So if you think about it, that the way they're designing it in terms of shared common spaces, for example, or limiting the car spaces that you might have because you're building the place very close to public transportation and all those kind of things, right? It reduces the overall cost of an individual apartment. So therefore, it's not that you're, you are, you're getting less money as an investor. It's just that the cost of providing those things are, are lower anyway. That's a key aspect of that. And the other piece of it is that because there's ways that they've de-risked the whole opportunity, for example, getting future buyers to provide commitments and deposits and, and therefore reducing the cost of equity, it means you can limit the cost of equity. And as part of this program, actually, they've put a limit in terms of what is the return on the equity that you can expect as an investor. And a lot of those investors are architects and proponents anyway. And then we come in off top of that and lend to that as a lender. So the combination of the two means that the cost of capital for bidding this is quite low and that we as investors were getting what we would expect for such a project. And the way they've approached it just reduces all the costs down anyway to make it uh, viable for all the investors. So it all comes back to uh, good design which is uh, where the efficiencies are made and the common call for more developments to, yeah, really focus on design. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And then coming back to Brightlight, which, yep. as you mentioned, was launched um, only a couple of years ago, how's business going? Is it profitable as a standalone? Yeah, uh, look, business thing, well, as I said, you know, we've been presently surprised in terms of what we're expecting from the market. You know, we went in basically thinking, our core client is going to be the Australian Super Fund. But very quickly, when we started, we started getting approaches from, from government departments, from nonprofit organizations, from fund managers and others 
who are basically saying, look, we really need to understand this whole impact investment space. Can you help us with some aspects of it? So from that perspective, you know, our business has been kind of expanding in terms of the number and types of clientele that we can bring in, which has been quite helpful. Uh, but also over the past two years since we launched, we have been continuously refining the offering to the market. And so, as I said, you know, the core piece of our offering now, based on the market feedback we've been getting, is that investors are looking for customized solutions because they have different impact objectives. Some Victorian-based investors, they want to have an impact in Victoria. And therefore, the solutions that they want in their portfolio might be different from somebody else who wants a global impact. So that customized solutions has been working quite well for investors. And we see that continuing as investors uh, continue to incorporate impact investing into their broader investment thinking. And as part of that as well, investors are also looking for not just sort of investment solutions, which could be advice or creating different portfolios from different fund managers. We also create kind of different products as well, like investable products, which democratize the access to impact investing. And those products would be, again, filling a gap in the market. So things like uh, affordable housing is an interesting one where you as an investor, if you wanted to contribute to the broader affordable housing, there isn't really like a product for you out there, right? So that's some of the things that we're thinking about in terms of how we do that. But I think all of those is being driven by the client demand that we're seeing. And our business has gone from the initial four people in, in 2016, now we I think we're about 10, and there's probably a few others in the pipeline. So that's just an indication of the kind of client demand that we're seeing and where the business will be going. Oh, great to hear demands growing. And this element of inclusion and democratization of finance, I think that's really, really important. And, um, you know, we've talked a lot about the big institutional investors, but many of my listeners are individuals who want to make a difference with how they invest. What are some options for them? I mean, the first thing I would say is, you know, <laughs> the options are limited. And that's part of the challenge that we are taking on as Brightline. On the listed side, taking into consideration what I said before, that there's ETFs that are targeting particular social issues, so whether it's environmental and the like, so you can invest in that. The change in legislation around crowdfunding and being able to invest in those opportunities, that will see a lot of, I guess, uh, social enterprises coming to the market that way, and that will just increase access for individual investors. I mean, there's also a bunch of other sort of socially responsible retail funds out there that investors can look at. But again, I think right now, the bulk of opportunities are in that sort of closer to that avoid no harm part of the spectrum. And so what we are working towards is creating opportunities where more and more of the contributing to solutions type of products are valuable for individual investors. Avoiding no-harm opportunities are a good place to start while the market is developing and maturing to offer other opportunities across the spectrum. 
Yeah, it's a big challenge and hopefully moves are being made and there might be some retail opportunities coming down the pipeline. All right. And to wrap up, it would be great uh, if we could get a book recommendation, something that people wanting to get a greater perspective on impact investing could read. I probably would recommend a book that uh, probably most of your investors or your listeners have heard about, which is sort of the Impact Investing book by Jed Emerson. Jared Emerson in particular takes both a pragmatic as well as an academic approach to impact investing. And the key thing there is when people are talking about impact investing, they're looking for the evidence that this works. So show me that this is the right thing to do. And I think that book takes sort of a good approach which says, you know, there is academic support that says this is where you should be but even without that there's sort of a a pragmatic approach to say this is the world we should go for this is the way the world should be going anyway and so it makes sense to start to go that way for people who are thinking about concepts around blended value how we can use the power of capital to make a difference I, i would say that's a good place to start but I think in general, what I found, at least for me, quite useful is that there's continuous thinking around impact investing, that there's, you know, articles and journal articles that come out that sort of are helpful for me to do that because books usually, after 12 months, they are almost obsolete in that sense because, this, you know, the field is changing so much that there's new thinking already. Uh, and so I usually default to the Stanford Social Impact Review, which is a kind of a regular public publication by, by Stanford University. There's a lot of like really interesting articles and journals that I, I, I recommend your, your readers to check out on a regular basis because there's some interesting things coming up. That's right. The Stanford Review is a really good one. It's quite unique in the way it's quite yeah. academic and very informative, but in a, in a magazine yeah. style, so it's very readable. And of course, Jed Emerson's Purpose of Capital is his latest one, and, and that's been yeah. discussed a few times by other people. So yeah, people should definitely <laughs> check that one out. All right. Well, look, thank you very much for all of that today, Simba. It's been really great. And yeah, hopefully we can touch base again in the future. Sounds good. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. country like Zimbabwe, that is, is a lot of mineral resources, a lot of rich farming land, a lot of young people who are eager and willing to work, and a government that has shown some willingness to reform. I think all of those things are good elements for people who really want to do investments that has a, a social purpose, a social license to operate, that's empowering and engaging with the with the local community. So we're advocating at least the opportunity for investors to really think about what is this social impact, environmental impact that we have as they are engaging with you know countries like Zimbabwe, where there's actually opportunity to really rethink that model. Is there a new sense of optimism now that there's a new government? Somewhat. I mean, I think. There's a sense of optimism because we had one leader for 37 years and so now there's a different person. So people are hopeful and expecting that they will take the country in a a, a different direction. And there's been some elements showing that they're willing to do that. But on the other end, it's still the same party 
and a lot of the people that were in the old regime are still there. So people are a little bit skeptic around to what extent are they really willing to change and, and uh, I guess move the country forward. People are cautiously optimistic, but I think there's elements in the economy that makes it quite a, um, I guess, uh, that provides some opportunities for, for social impact investors.